reflections from Pontius Pilate, the one who ordered the execution of Jesus. Just before we dismiss Bridge Kids, two quick things I'd like to say. We're going to have a child dedication on Mother's Day, okay? We've done that for years. We're going to do it this year. We'll be a little more socially distant, but we are going to do it. And uh, you may have also noticed that we have a baptism scheduled for July 18th, so we want you to keep that on your calendar. So Bridge Kids, thanks for being here. You're dismissed. Anybody who, yeah, we have a few. Some of the kids are already in Bridge Kids. Some of them are in the service as we begin our worship, and now they're heading out for their class. As Adam mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday. That's exactly one week before Easter. It is the Sunday before the day that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Um, Palm Sunday marked the beginning of the Holy Week or the last week, the last days of Jesus. And it was an unusual day because in fulfillment of prophecy, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and he was honored and praised and worshiped. And he was the most popular guy in Jerusalem on that day. Five days later, the same city, the same location, they yelled, crucify, crucify. In our study, uh, series, The Road to Redemption, we followed Jesus' last days in Mark 14 and 15, covering uh, the Last Supper with Jesus' disciples. Uh, they established uh, communion uh, honoring a new covenant that was being inaugurated. And uh, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was denied by Peter. He was uh, arrested in the garden. And then uh, through a very long time, uh, he went through six different groups that he had to come before, three religious trials or hearings and three civil trials. Um, and then we, we followed through with the crucifixion of Jesus. Then we went to Psalm 22, and uh, last week, uh, Isaiah 53. And um, last week, I told you about a time in Edwin uh, Stanton's life. Remember, he was once uh, Secretary of War. And uh, we referred back to uh, an event in 1855 where he was representing this huge case in Chicago, and he was one of those big-time, high-powered lawyers back from the East. And he met a, a, a young um, country lawyer from Illinois that was on his team, and he, he called him a long-armed ape to his face and um, treated him like a country Bumpkin. And, of course, we later know that the, that man was Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln went on to become president. And interesting that Lincoln didn't hold a grudge, and Lincoln understood forgiveness, and he asked Edwin Stanton to be his secretary of war uh, during the most crucial time, one of the most crucial times in our nation's history uh, during the Civil War. But that wasn't the only time that Stanton bumbled when it comes to recognizing leadership. 1863, eight years later, in the Civil War, the tide had begun to change for the Union Army. Gen General Ulysses S. Grant was one of the reasons why there was such a change. 
Grant was becoming a rising star among the generals. Uh, he, he was becoming very popular with national and lit- leaders and political leaders, and everybody wanted to meet him. In the fall of 1863, um, in fact, it was October, Grant was on his way to a meeting in Louisville. And um, he was contacted and approached by the Secretary of War, Stanton. Stanton wanted to meet this man. Stanton and Grant had never met personally, but they had communicated by telegraph. When Stanton found Grant's railroad car, he just barged in abruptly into the car, and he looked at all of the officers in the car, and then he decided which one he assumed would be General Grant, and he went up and grabbed his hand and just started enthusiastically shaking his hand, and he said, how do you do, General Grant? I recognize you by your picture. After a little hesitation there, he became aware that he was shaking the hands of the medical director. And later, uh, Stanton admitted that in guessing which man was Grant, he had eliminated the real Grant because Grant was just too ordinary to be such a great leader. That's the same way as we talked about last week, that many perceived Jesus. Jesus was just too ordinary to, to, to draw attention to. But one of the things I want to say today is that sometimes God wraps His greatest gifts in ordinary packages. Sometimes He does that. We're going to look at Isaiah uh, chapter 53 and continue, but I want to remind us of the context of this passage, and I'm going to read uh, part of the passage we looked at last week. I'm going to read Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 6. And here's what Isaiah... Now, keep in mind that Isaiah is writing about 800 years before uh, the life of Christ here, you know, 750 or so. So we say 8th century B.C., Isaiah writes, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low self-esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's the passage that leads right up to where we start today in Isaiah 53. In verses 7 through 9, we see God's servant executed. Um, And we see his silence in verse 7. So let's look at that verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And we saw that in Mark. This describes Jesus after the time he was arrested and paraded through all of the religious trials and the civil trials. 
He was beating and he was mocked and he was berated. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so did so he did not open his mouth. Like a sheep, he was submissive in his environment. Um, he did not fight. He did not fight back. He did not argue. He did not defend himself. He was just silent. Uh, Matthew records this as well, and we're going to look at Matthew 27, or 26, verses 62 through 63a. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, this would have been Caiaphas, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. So this is the case with in the religious trials, and this was just how Jesus responded. Then we go to the Matthew 27 passage. This is before Pilate. This is a civil trial. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? And it's like Pilate wants Jesus to help him out. He wants Jesus to answer. He wants Jesus to, you know, explain his side of the story because he really doesn't believe the religious leaders. But Jesus made no reply, not even a, to a single charge, to the great amazement of the government, uh, of the governor. Um, and then comes his death in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation pro protested? You know what? People were afraid in the audience. They didn't mess with anybody around an execution. They didn't, they didn't mess with the Romans. They were just passive. Even his followers didn't speak up. They, the ones who were there watched. His closest disciples, maybe except John, were gone. They weren't even present. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And that's the key phrase. It's a key phrase in the Old Testament. He was cut off. He was put to death. It wasn't natural causes. He was put to death, cut off from the land of the living. No longer uh, among the living. Now he would be among the dead. F reason for the transgressions of my people, Isaiah records, he was punished. Not because of his own sin, but it was the sin of the nation Israel. And not only for the sin of Israel, but it's very clear Isaiah wants to communicate to the nation. And that's, that's just who he wants to write to here. Um, Isaiah 53, 6, that's a passage I just re re read. Remember, we all like sheep have gone astray. Uh, there's a tendency in humanity to drift, to do their own thing, to go their own way, to ignore God, to devalue God or what he has to say. There's a tendency to just want to find happiness on our own, um, to glorify self in our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has put our sin onto Jesus, onto this choice servant, 
onto his son. And we call this in theology the substitutionary atonement. He took our place. He was our substitute, our stand-in. He took what I deserve. I deserve a spiritual death because of sin, and he took my death to give me the opportunity to live. Um, Jesus talked about this uh, early in his ministry, and John records it in John chapter 10. He's, uh, if you re recall this, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I just want to be clear, this is no surprise to Jesus. This was the plan. All along, this was the plan. He's the great shepherd. He's going to voluntarily lay down his life for all those sheep who've gone astray. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And, and there he's talking about those who are genuine followers of Christ, those disciples, those who are already in relationship with him because they have, they have come to believe in him, even in the lifetime of Jesus. And it's a, a description of a personal relationship. Jesus knows them personally and they know Jesus personally. They have a relationship. It's not just a religion. It's personal. But he conti continues, um, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There, there is, it is again. He is going to give up his life for people. Uh, next slide. John 10, 17, and 18. The reason my father loves me is that, why? I lay down my life only to take it up again. That was the plan all along. Uh, no one takes it up from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. This was voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And that's why Jesus told Pilate that he didn't have the authority unless it was granted to him. This command I received from my father. And Jesus came to do the will of his father. Um, that the good shepherd would lay down his life refers to his sacrificial death for us. It was his choice. Uh, and then after his death, what, what comes next? Well, it's his burial, verse 9. Isaiah just follows it through. It's pretty amazing when you think about when this was written and how detailed this is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Uh, verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, what's that all about? Well, in the first century, when the Romans executed people, when they hung them on the cross in a group, they just pulled down the group of bodies and threw them in a mass grave with criminals. That would be very dishonoring for a godly man. And so that was the norm. That was the plan. That's what the way it would have been done in the, in the first century. Um, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Um, 
we, we see how this is fulfilled in, in John 19, uh, verses 38 uh, through 40. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, watch this. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now, why would he fear the Jewish leaders? Joseph is a member of the ruling council. Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us that Joseph did not vote to condemn Jesus. This is a highly risky situation. And this great sacrificial act of love Joseph comes forward. Now, this has got to be public now. Did you hear what Joseph did? He went to Pilate to get the body. This is one way to come out of the closet as a Christ follower. Uh, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Next slide. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who early earlier visited Jesus tonight, John chapter 3. Who is Nicodemus? He's a member of the ruling council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. These are two very influential people who are secret disciples, genuine Christ followers, and now they display their commitment, and they come forward for the body. Um, you know, I think of the courage that would have taken. Is, to me, it's really quite amazing. So Nicodemus uh, brought a, a, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. This is definitely a rich man's burial. The next slide. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the, spice, with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was taken to a rich man's tomb, and he got the, a burial of a godly man in the first century in Jerusalem. Um, The last section of Isaiah 53 uh, is verses 10 through 12. And uh, now God's servant is vindicated. Uh, the wrongs are going to be made right. They're going to be corrected. As Jesus is the victor. Verse 10, we, we see his sacrifice again. It's, it's just amazing how clear Isaiah is in describing uh, how the, the sin penalty would be laid upon Jesus. Uh, ver verse 10, his sacrifice. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It was clearly God's will the entire time. And one of the things that we see here is, well, what about responsibility? I mean, the scripture says that it was God's will, that God was working out all these details. That that was God's plan for Jesus. So who's responsible? Well, Pilate is the one who ordered the execution of Jesus when he could have freed him. The religious leaders were the one who condemned him and orchestrated uh, the crowd to yell out, crucify, 
It was the soldiers who drove the nails in Jesus' body. Who's responsible? They are. God is, yes, but humans are always responsible for their own actions. And yes, God is working out his plan in history. Also in verse 10, we see this change. He will see his offspring. God's servant will see his offspring. What does that mean? Jesus didn't have any kids, did he? Not biologically. How about spiritually? To as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, his spiritual descendants. He will see his spiritual descendants and prolong his days because the grave is not going to be the end for Jesus. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Um, God will prosper the work of Jesus in his kingdom. God will prosper Jesus in the work of his church. It's exactly what God has been doing. What Jesus has been doing is building his church and his kingdom. And it's been going on for over 2,000 years. The Apostle John uh, mentions this sacrifice in, in 1 John 3, 16. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And, and John is reminding us that this is how God demonstrated his love for us. The great shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. We were the ones who strayed. We were the ones who drift away. We are the ones who go our own way. And Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is the exchange life. His life for our life, for my life. He gave his life so I could be saved, yes. So I could be forgiven, yes. So I could have eternal life, yes. So I could be a citizen of heaven, yes. But so that now I could follow him and serve him. And I can begin to express his love to my world. And that we can express love to one another. And sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Sometimes Christians aren't very fun. Sometimes Christians are weird. Sometimes Christians really get on our nerves and are stressful. And yet, we're called to love. This, this is how the world will know we indeed are Christ's followers. Um, and then we come uh, to the resurrection in verse 11. Death will not be the end for God's servant. Look at verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Yes, there will be a death. Yes, he will be cut off from the land of the living. Yes, he will be buried in a rich man's grave. Then he will see the light of life. Not darkness, but light. Not death, but life. He will see, he will be given new life. He will be raised. 
And then we come to that last uh, phrase, in the, that last part, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will justify many. Maybe a better translation would be is by uh, knowledge of him. By knowledge of him, many will be justified by uh, the righteous uh, servant. Now, this whole idea of being justified, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to take this section and he's going to be the champion of it in the New Testament. And he's going to write the book of Romans to explain it and he's going to write the book of Galatians to explain it. What it means when a person comes to faith, they're guilty before God, guilty of um, violating God's standards. And then by faith in Christ, they're declared righteous in the courts of heaven. We call that the doctrine of justification. And by knowledge of him, many will be justified, declared righteous by this righteous servant. And then again, here it comes, the substitutionary atonement. He will bear their iniquities. That's what Jesus did. He carried our sin on the cross. And I'm only repeating it as much as the text does, okay? He took on the sin of the whole world, and he died for us. Now, you know, it seems to me that every once in a while we just should be reminded about this sin penalty because we know the facts. We know what happened on the Holy Week. We know how we're supposed to become Christians. We know we're supposed to follow him. But just how big is the sin penalty? Let's just go ahead and calculate that this morning. Let's take your sin penalty. Let's start with you. How big is your sin penalty? I don't know, but let's just put a dollar amount on it. So go ahead and put a dollar amount on your personal sin penalty. How much do you owe God to redeem yourself? Well, what about the rest of your family? How much would it take to cover your kids, your mate, or your extended family? Go ahead, you know, add that up. But let's cover, make sure, let's now cover everybody in the room, because that's only fair, right? He, and then... How about, let's go for, let's expand it to Eau Claire. We're 68,000 people here. How about the Chippewa Valley? Depending on where you mark out the valley, it's anywhere from like 120,000 to 150,000. And then we could expand it to Wisconsin or, you know, 6 million people. How big is this end penalty? It just keeps bigger and bigger and bigger. And, okay, let's expand it to the U.S., 331,420,000. And what about the rest of the world? Yeah, we've got to include them. Jesus died for the whole world. He died for every person. Well, what about historically? What about those people that are already dead? Yes, he died for them. How big is the sin penalty all the way back to Adam and Eve? It's just getting bigger and bigger. Now, what about people who have not yet been born yet all over the world? The answer is yes. And you better hope so because that includes your kids maybe not yet born or your descendants not yet born. He died for them and they haven't even had a chance to experience sin firsthand yet. How can that be? It's because of who Jesus is, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is 
fully God. He's also fully human, but he is fully God. And his life is infinitely valuable. How big is the sin penalty? I have no clue. It's humongous. But it's finite. When Jesus comes back, it stops. It'll be finite, a penalty that can be paid only by something infinite, something bigger. And Jesus paid it all. I hope you appreciate that. We're not talking about a little small-time religion. We're talking about the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. One day we get to see him face to face. Last verse, verse 12, his justification. Isaiah says, therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils. This is God speaking. I will give him a portion among the great. This is an understatement. And divide the spoils with the strong. God's servant is going to be a great conqueror. He he will have an immense victory. He will defeat Satan and his false kingdom and all evil in the universe. And he will share all of the benefits that come with this with his followers. It includes resources for spiritual warfare that's available to us right now. It, it, It includes a time coming when evil in the future will totally be wiped out. And you and I, if we are genuine Christ followers, will have the privilege of being in an eternal kingdom to enjoy him forever. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Remember, he, he was, he was uh, crucified with criminals. He was numbered with, uh, with people that were enemies of the state and, and enemies of God. He, and, um, but he hadn't committed any sin. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. God's going to give his servants all the spoils of war that come with his victory uh, because Jesus was obedient to death. He bore the sin of the world. This is the exchanged life again. His life for our life. Our life now for his life. To live for him. That's what our purpose is. He was resurrected then. He was ascended into heaven. And he is now making intercession for transgressors. He is now making intercession, fulfilling Hebrews 7.25, our great high priest who intercedes for us. Right now, Jesus is praying for us. That was his justification. What about our justification? Jesus was vindicated for his life of sacrifice. He was resurrected. He was ascended. Now we can be justified. We can have justification because of him. Romans 5, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes in the first century, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We've been declared righteous. Now, he's talking to Christ followers already, but this is how we we were justified. This is how anyone is justified. 
And it's by faith. It's through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because um, before I came to faith when I was 25 years old, before I came to faith, I was at enmity with God on days whether I felt like it or not. I was an enemy of God whether I knew it or not. It wasn't about how I felt about it. it was, that's the, that, that was the state, the spiritual condition. I was an enemy and at enmity with God. But with faith in Christ, September 24th, 1974, it changed. My spiritual condition changed. No longer at enmity with God, no longer an enemy with God, now peace with God. And that isn't necessarily an experience. It is a condition. No longer at war with God because Jesus has mediated peace. Jesus has made it possible for me to have a relationship with God through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. That's an amazing, amazing thing. We have access to God because of Jesus. We didn't have, there's no other way to have access to God. Remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not a, another way. It's not based on um, you know, popular opinion, you know, if we were to do a survey on what people think, it's not, it's not based on that. Jesus is the way. And he is the way we have access to God. And it's by faith into this grace, this, this new condition. It's unmerited favor, something we don't deserve. And we boast in the hope of glory. Um, it's not about our performance. It's not about doing good things. That's not how we have access. It's not about being religious. Not about being a good person. You know, there's a place for doing good works, but that's not how we gain access. It's recognizing that only Jesus opens that door. And again, it's not because any of us are good enough, because none of us are good enough. It's about believing the good news that Christ died for us. And that's about making it personal. That's sometimes the hardest thing for people is to make it personal. They can hear the words and they can think of a religion. That's what that religion believes. What you need to know is that it's, you need to think that Jesus is alive and well right now, sitting at the right hand of God, and he knows everything about your life, and he's just waiting for you to respond to the gift that he wants to offer you. And faith changes our relationship with God. It starts the relationship with God. And so without Christ, we are at enmity with God. Whether we think so or not, faith in Christ brings us peace with God. It changes our relationship. Um, and then we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We, we cannot boast in ourselves because it's not because how good I am or how many good things I've done. You know, I don't get any credit for how many sermons I've preached. Um, there's, there's no credit. The only credit that counts is what Jesus has done for us. And we have that hope. And we can boast in God. We can boast in what Jesus has done for us. And that's our justification. That's how we can be 
justified. And lastly, I want to talk about our gift. Salvation is a gift. Uh, You and I, again, are never going to be worthy of it. It has to be given. Well-known passage, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's by grace. That means God's favor. It's unconditional favor. Can't be earned. It's not deserved. It's through faith. It's about responding back to God, embracing what God has said. It's not from ourselves again. Not about my goodness, that I'm somehow better than other people or somehow good enough to be accepted by God because I'm not. It is a gift. If I could earn it, it wouldn't be a gift. If you could be good enough, it wouldn't be a gift. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. You know, Paul just says it again, so that no one could boast. Now, I could imagine that if it was about earning, and if I thought I had earned salvation, I might begin to think, I'm just a little better than you. I'm a little bit of cut above most people, you know, because I'm so good. That's called pride, and that's a whole other problem, isn't it? That's not how we do it. It's by faith. And then uh, one of the... uh, other passages that Paul writes, and this is in the first century, and this is to the church at Rome. He says by, this is Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And of course, he's saying the consequences for sin in our lives is that we have to face death. This isn't physical death. This is spiritual death. This is eternal death. It means eternal condemnation before God. Jesus called it hell. But let's not stop there. Look at the last part. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a gift. It's eternal life is a gift. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good news is is that God has a gift to offer all people. It's a gift of eternal life. It includes forgiveness of sin. It includes having heaven as our home. We don't deserve it. And it comes through Jesus, and it's by faith in him. One writer said, God often hides his greatest gifts in ordinary packages. When God's son came to this earth, he was just in an ordinary package. He appeared to be an ordinary person by the world's standards. He was ordinary in appearance. He had an ordinary education. He came from a pretty ordinary family. And yet he was the greatest gift to our world. The greatest gift of all was God sending his son, Jesus Christ. And God offers the gift of eternal life, of having a personal relationship with him by having access to God. He offers that to all people. First, it starts with becoming a genuine Christ follower and embracing the good news by faith. It's our jobs who call ourselves Christ followers to follow Christ one step at a time, one day at a time. It's our job as Christ followers to display this message to our world, to share this message, to live in a way where 
It makes sense to people and seems attractive because of how we live. And that's not going to make everybody happy, but that's not our goal. Today, I'd like to give everyone the opportunity, everyone here, uh, everybody who's uh, watching on video, whether they're at home or wherever they are, an opportunity to begin a relationship with Christ if you've never done that before. Um, you can do that just by uh, talking to God in prayer. It's, it's simple. It's just being honest with God and talking to God. And as we, as we close this morning, I would just like to offer prayer is an expression of faith. It's just a way that if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you could do that right now, wherever you are. So let's, let's just all bow in prayer. Could we do that together? And um, if, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I just want to invite you to, to join me uh, in prayer and talking to God and expressing your heart. Dear God, I just want to acknowledge before you that just like uh, sheep who've gone astray, that's what I've done. I've gone astray. I've, I've dishonored you with some of the choices I've made in my life. I failed you. I know it. I admit it. I know that I have sinned. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus for me personally. Thank you that you love us and that you've demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus so that he would die for me and he would pay the penalty for my sins. Just thank you. I trust him right now. I'm just really grateful, God, for what, what you've done for me. I don't deserve it. I, I know that. And God, I just ask that you would just, would you help me to learn as a beginner just to follow you? Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Now, if you, if you prayed with me uh, and, and you're here in this room today, would you just mind slipping up your hand so I could see you? If you just prayed along with me silently, uh, just go ahead and slip up your hand. Okay, anyone else? Okay, thanks. You can put your hands down. Thank you, God, for uh, those who have indicated today, whether they're here in this room or whether they're at home and watching um, a, a video, that they have reached out to you. And it's not a display for me, it's, it's for you. May, um, may they experience your forgiveness. May they sense it right now. May they experience your presence. May they understand that they have been given a gift that includes forgiveness and includes eternal life, a fresh start, a new start. Help them to follow you. And God, that's my prayer for, for all of us in this room as we um, have the privilege to, to know you, to have received the gospel message, and to have uh, a relationship with you and to know your love. Help us, one step at a time, to follow you in obedience 
and to set our course to be more like Jesus each day with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we might show your love, that we might serve you on mission to help others connect with you and become fully devoted followers of Christ. For Jesus' sake, I pray.